Let me say a prayer for us, and then we will jump right in. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the nation in which we live. I pray for your wisdom and your guidance for our leaders, all of our leaders, that their hearts might be turned toward you, and Father, you'd be lifted up in this nation. I pray that you would help us to reach out to everyone in this nation and in this world, that we might be agents of your peace, we might be ambassadors of your love and your grace, that all might turn to you and be saved. Father, thank you for Crossings Church and the blessing that we get to gather here together as a family. In Christ's name, amen. Well, let's do a really short review. We try to do that a little bit each time, and I find that repetition kind of gets the dates and the geography in your, in your mind. But if you remember, I'm going to suggest that the book of Job happened, these events happened, uh, somewhere here probably in northern Arabian desert. Uh, and Job lived there in approximately 1800 B.C. So you have Abraham, who is in the area of Canaan at this point in time. We talked about Job is not a Jew, meaning Job is not a descendant likely of Abraham, but he does worship God. And so Job's story is set in this time period. There's clearly a civilization because Job is... Uh, wealthy, Job is devout, Job is uh, respected in his community, but you and I know that a scene opens in heaven and basically Satan, who is the accuser in this drama, in this story, and he basically accuses Job of two things. One, Job only serves you because you give him stuff. Although he had seven sons, I'm not sure that really qualifies. I have three, don't want seven. And, but he said, you give him stuff, you bless him. And he said, beyond that, even if you took that away, he would certainly curse you if you made him personally suffer or threatened his life. God said, no, that's not the case. Well, that's Satan's MO all through history. Satan is accusing, we talked about how this is, Job is every man, and this, this story, this event that happened is as applicable today as anything in the Bible. And that is Satan making the same accusation to you and me. And as we go through this, I hope you've seen that, you know what? That we are tempted in some ways to serve God in return for something. And that's not at all consistent with the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, but it is something that we're tempted to fall into. Well, Job loses his possessions, he loses his children, he loses his IRA, he loses everything. And he then becomes afflicted himself with sores. So think about Job being in great agony and suffering and pain. His insurance is canceled, can't see the doctor. And so he is basically through the story experiencing this suffering. Now you and I can tell what caused this. Job doesn't know what caused this. In other words, he thought that because he was righteous, now here come these afflictions that he doesn't think that he has done anything to deserve, and it begins to upset his worldview a little bit. Well, we talked about his friends. His friends come, and they want to comfort him, but pretty quickly they begin to help him. And when you're going to comfort him, what do they want to do? They want to help him get a handle on this situation. They basically are trying to help him say, Job, let's see if we can make some sense of this situation. We've talked before about how suffering shrinks our world. 
and it just pulls everything in around us. It can lead us to some really dark places, but it certainly shrinks our world. And so his friends are trying to enter that little world and say, Job, let us give you some perspective. They come to this with a principle, a principle about how the universe works and a principle about how God works. And that is, if you're righteous, if you're innocent, if you serve God, then you will prosper. In other words, bad things don't happen to good people. Well, Job rejects that, obviously, because Job realizes, wait a minute, I don't think that I have done anything wrong, and yet I am suffering. Consequently, Job is stuck, and that's where we left him in our last lesson, was his friends had tried to explain this to him, and Job said, you know, I hear what you're saying, but I've got a dilemma here, because part of that doesn't seem true. One of the things, and this is still review because I want to plant this idea, one of the things that we talked about of understanding suffering is we're not going to tie this up with a nice little bow. We'll see what the book of Job does for us in our next lesson when God himself will show up and answer for himself. But at this point, there's not a nice, neat bow, but there are directional indicators. There are thoughts that come into this, and I think it's important as we go through it, not to just get a soundbite answer. You know, we'll just put something out on Twitter and says, here's the point of suffering, and here's the answer to the story of Job, and I'll do it in, you know, 240, 280 characters. It doesn't work that way. Plus, I found that when you get answers like that, it's like eating a Girl Scout cookie. By the way, it's Girl Scout cookie time again. Did you guys know that? That's like the happiest time of the year. Anyway, so it's like eating a Girl Scout cookie you want another one pretty soon. And so you get these simple little answers. Month later, you're still struggling with the idea of why is my life not going well? And so I think it's good to think it through. Well, one of the ideas that we had is this. We actually don't have a big problem with suffering per se. In other words, you might just say, well, suffering's bad. This is a cultural view. Suffering's bad. You should avoid it. That's simplistic. Let me show you a picture. This is from 9-11, and the thing that you notice in this picture is the firefighters are going toward the trouble, right? You're all familiar with this. You see these stories of heroism. You see rescuers being killed themselves, trying to help other people. You see them being hurt and suffering. If they wanted to avoid any chance of suffering, they would run the other way, but they don't. And it's true for Christians, certainly, but even in our culture, suffering is not always bad. Else, why would people do this, and why would we hold them up to be heroes? Think of some other examples that you know. People go through uh, difficult times. For example, medical trials. There, there are people who have terminal diseases and who go through trials to help someone else. Does that make sense? You're going to suffer more, but you can understand that perhaps the next person or the next child might, medicine then, might be able to learn from your case to help them. It's altruistic. Think about organ donors. There's a young man on our staff that did our devotional for our staff this week who gave one of his kidneys to someone. And so the point is, you suffer, and I'm not 
talking about that's on the magnitude of Job, but you get my point, is you might go through hard times, maybe even the rest of your life having certain limitations, but what makes that different? What makes it different is there's a, some kind of transcendent meaning to that suffering. It changes the perspective. Part of Job's problem is he can't answer the question, why is this happening to me? And you know, the truth is you can't always answer the question, why is it happening to me? But I simply want to make the point that suffering in and of itself, first of all, it's inevitable. There is no doubt that we are all going to experience pain, difficulty in life. We know that. We simply want to minimize it and, and basically avoid it as much as we can. But you know what? That's too simplistic because we don't. We simply want suffering to have meaning. And I think this is an important idea. In fact, we kind of like, uh, and I want to describe it this way, we kind of like to know what is the end of the story. If you could only, God, tell me the end of the story, that this makes sense, that it's meaningful, but that doesn't even happen a lot of other times. Think about the people who died in combat for a transcendent meaning. In other words, they went to combat, watching a really good documentary on World War II right now, so I'll just pick pick on World War II. And so you get all these young men going into combat from America to, I mean, what's the safe play? Don't go to Europe and don't go fight because you're going to suffer if you go there and fight. And yet there was a greater meaning. And so they thought for the purpose of freedom, to free other people, to keep more Jews from being massacred, to keep more people from uh, suffering horribly, we will go risk suffering ourselves, this is what these soldiers are thinking, to go uh, help them. So they go, but here's the interesting thing. So they suffer, many of them die, uh, and they do it without a knowledge of how it ends. I mean, I, I know that you and I sit here now and go, wow, that was really worth it because we won, we rescued a lot of people, we kept even worse things from happening. You and I know that, but those young men did not know that. They died not knowing if we were going to win that war. They died at times when it didn't look like we were going to win that war. They did incredibly heroic things, never knowing what the last chapter of the story is. Does that make sense? So in a sense, we don't really, I just want us to think clearly about this. It's not the suffering in and of itself. It's the, I can't figure out the meaning. And yet we will still even voluntarily at times, like those soldiers, enter into periods of strife and difficulty and suffering because we think it's worth it even though we don't know how the last chapter turns out. That's kind of the story of Job. And to know how the story turns out, you either need to live a lot later or you need to be the author of the book. And one of the metaphors I'd like to use is I want you to think about God being the author of your book, your story, Job's story. And when you're in the middle of these things, you don't see the last chapter, just like those soldiers didn't see who was going to win, but they trusted and they were willing to give that. So in the hopes that the last chapter would be successful, meaning they could alleviate the suffering. It's that kind of faith, because that's faith, if you will, is the same idea in the story of Job and the same idea for us. So I simply want to plant that seed, make that point. We're going to talk about some other things in this lesson, but I think that's an important thing to remember. This is not unusual. Suffering is not unusual. 
And suffering even voluntarily is not unusual. What's hard is when you don't know why, and we're called upon to trust that. I just want you to realize that happens more than you and I realize. Question? At the risk of a setup here, where was Job's wife while all this was happening? <laughs> where was Job's wife? You know, it's, uh, I have a lot of sympathy for Job's wife. If you remember uh, when first uh, they lose their stuff, they lose their kids, and Job says, uh, you know, in, naked I came into this world and naked I leave. The Lord gave, the Lord's taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You remember, she lost all that too. And then when he struck, she looks at him. You can read this one of two ways. And so he struck down with this disease, and she says to him, Job, why do you hold on to your integrity? If you'll just curse God, God, I'm pretty sure you'll die. Now, you can either take that as she just has lost faith in this, and she can't understand it, or it may just be compassion, like I really hate to see you suffer in this way. And so he answers her and he said, shall we accept good things from God and not bad things from God? In other words, I'm going to hold on to trusting God. I certainly don't see the last chapter of this story, but I'm going to trust God with that. So he sits there in suffering. They've lost everything. And he waits for his friends. She leaves the story. So we don't know what she was doing during this time. Most of the paintings, by the way, I think the one that I put on your handout is uh, a great painting, but I believe it shows Job's three friends, you know, admonishing Job and she is there with him. But we don't know that. The text does not say, is, is she there? Is she somewhere else? Uh, she really has nowhere to go. So I presume that she is enduring this with Job. That's my hypothesis is that she is enduring this with Job. Not that she personally is afflicted with pain, but obviously she too is suffering in a great way. So I, I kind of think they're probably doing this together. But she doesn't get to speak in this, uh, in this, and I'm sure she would have wiser things to say than Job's friends, however. So I want you to think about this idea of suffering. It's not as unusual as we think. What we really want is meaning. And we just sometimes don't get meaning. And there are oftentimes we're willing to suffer anyway. That's, what, that's really what Satan is saying. If you think about it, another way to look at this book, certainly it's set up as Satan making an accusation against you. And he's basically saying, you serve God in return for something. Either hashtag blessed, give me good stuff, take care of my kids, whatever, or keep me from having really bad things happening to me. He said, that's what it takes for you to serve God. And when we go through suffering, like Job is going through suffering, and we trust that the author knows how to end this story, we refute that accusation. It's faith that ultimately refutes that accusation. At the end of the day, here's a great way to understand Job. If you did want a, a little uh, soundbite meaning of the book of Job, this might be it, but it's there's more to it than this, but the question is, what does it take for Job to serve God? Satan says, well, it takes at least a couple of things for Job to be willing to serve God. What does it take for you to serve God? And at the end of the day, the story of Job and the triumphant story of Job, and this is why God is not going to be unhappy with Job, is it turns out Job doesn't need anything to serve God. And that is a powerful statement of faith. You'll see that same thing through the New Testament. 
When you think about the Apostle Paul, God said, you know, you, you now understand the truth. You trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You have eternal life. Now I've got a job for you. He goes, great. What do you want me to do, a radio show? He goes, not exactly. You know, I want you to go live a life of suffering, hardship, through the rest of your life. Oh, and by the way, they'll cut your head off at the end. Okay? So that's your job description. Off you go and do that. Paul is willing to do it. In fact, Paul writes these letters from prison about how joyful he is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? How can you suffer and still be joyful? You look and you trust, and in our case, we know the last chapter of our story. So I want you to think about that idea. Job is wrestling with this because Job doesn't really have that paradigm, and his friends aren't helping him. Let's go see what they have to say. They actually... There's two parts to this. Here's Eliphaz, listen to this. What is man that he could be pure? Or one born of woman that he could be righteous? If God places no trust in his holy ones, if even the heavens are not pure in his eyes, how much less a man who's vile and corrupt drinks up evil like water? In other words, Job, everybody's corrupt and since you're suffering, you must be really corrupt. Great friend. Then the three of them, I just kind of pulled out some uh, quotes for you. It says, all his days the wicked man suffers torment, the ruthless through all the years stored up for him. Then, another of his friends, the lamp of the wicked is snuffed out, the flame of his fire stops burning. And another, surely you know how it has been from of old, ever since man was placed on the earth, that the mirth of the wicked is brief, the joy of the godless lasts but a moment. Well, they're kind of doubling down at this point because they don't know what Job knows. So what did they say? Their first, their first point was, Righteous people, innocent people, good people, God-fearing people, whatever. A righteous person prospers. Job, you're not prospering, so you're not righteous. That's been the first half of the dialogue, is they've kind of made that point to Job. And the problem for Job is, he says, I know that I didn't do anything wrong, so that paradigm, I'm really struggling with it. And he pushes back and he says, you know, I don't know if that paradigm is right. Well, they kind of double down and they say this. They say not only do the righteous prosper, the wicked suffer. And that's their little paradigm. Righteous people, innocent people prosper. Wicked people, evil people suffer or get punished. So they're kind of going, having it both ways. That idea, by the way, is called karma. In, in our language in the West, we call that karma. And the idea of karma is this. If you do good things, good things will happen to you. If you listen to a lot of popular music, especially folk music, it really is built around that idea of karma. And that is you do good things, good things will come back around to you. It's sort of like the, the whole idea of be kind to people, random acts of kindness. I'm not opposed to that, especially if I'm behind you in the Chick-fil-A line. I'm fine with that. But the point of it is not so much Christian, per se, as karmic. It kind of buys into this. What is the implicit assumption? If I do good things to you, someday you'll do good deed for me, or someone will do good deed for me. It all comes around. In fact, there was this great commercial, really popular a few months ago, where uh, it's just well-filmed, but you see somebody doing a good deed for this person, and they go, huh, that was nice. Maybe I should be nice. Then they go do a good deed for somebody else, and they go, huh, maybe I should be nice. And then they do a good deed, and then finally it comes all the way back around to the person who started it. That's karma. 
That is modern thinking that good people prosper, wicked people suffer. That's all that is. In other words, you do bad stuff, it'll come back to haunt you. You know, cheaters never win. That another kind of an idea is that everything gets paid out. Well, that's not true, right? You know that's not true. Experientially, it's not true. Philosophically, it's not true. It's never been true. So in the religions that believe in karma, the only way you can make this work is you need reincarnation. I agree, it isn't going to work in this life, but it will in the next. If you're a good person, maybe you will be reincarnated as, I don't know, a prince or princess or daytime soap opera star. Or if you're a bad person, maybe you'll be reincarnated as an ant or something, you know, something lower, and then you have to kind of break this chain of karma. That's how those religions deal with that, because karma doesn't work. I mean, it simply isn't the experience that we have in life, it's not true. Well, Job's kind of realizing this is not true. But here's an interesting thought experiment. I'll give you two thought experiments tonight. Would you like a world in which that was true? Would you like a world in which that was true? Good people prosper, bad people suffer. Would you like that world? It's worth thinking through. First of all, there's no mercy. You deserve what you get and you get what you deserve. Not necessarily a bad thing, right? There's no grace. Nobody's gonna come give you something that you didn't earn or didn't deserve. No, that's not karma. Your good deeds get measured out in good returns. Your bad deeds get measured out in bad return. I would suggest that if you think about that a little bit, you realize that would be hell on earth. That would be so bad. And I'll tell you why it's bad. The reason for that and this is kind of, stick with me, this kind of ties into what Job is going to answer his friends, is that the idea of fairness, because that sounds fair, doesn't it? I mean, nobody could say, hey, that's not fair. You get what you deserve, you deserve what you get. You know, if you do good stuff, you're going to get good stuff. That's fair. The problem is that fairness is a very relative idea. And goodness turns out to be a very relative idea. Go with me this far. So you're sitting next to somebody. I come up to you and I say, hey, who's this person you're next to? And they go, oh, she is a great person or he is a really good guy. I go, oh, that's awesome. Same experiment. We are in somewhere in the Syrian desert. And we go into the tent and it's an Al-Qaeda tent and walk up to one of the guys, he's sitting next to a guy and say, hey, how are you? And let me introduce you to my friend. He's a really good guy. Can both of those people be truthful? Sure. This guy says, this is my buddy. He's blown up a bunch of people. He is a really good guy because his idea of goodness is not the same as your idea of goodness and his idea of fairness is not the same idea of your fairness. For example, you might say, hey, you know, it's really not fair to just go kill people who haven't done anything to you. And he goes, oh really, America? Seriously, do you really think it's fair that you have exploited my people through all these centuries? You know. Seriously, the idea of fairness and the idea of goodness turn out to be, in human terms, extremely relative terms. No one can actually figure out a way to make karma work. That good people have good things happen to them because you and I cannot actually agree on who's a good person. And we don't have the power, even if we did, to make good things happen. Does that make sense? So this idea that they're proposing is righteous people, it's an orderly world, it sounds like a good world, sounds like a fair world, 
Biggest problem with it is no one can agree on what's fair. No one agrees on what's good. And so Job and his friends are trapped in a paradigm that doesn't work. It's not true, and it doesn't work. And they've doubled down and are kind of saying to Job that if you were righteous, you'd be prospering, but you're not, so you're wicked. And guess what? Wicked people suffer. Ergo, you see how an airtight little circular logic that is? You can't beat that deal. That's, by the way, what prosperity theology is based on. It's a similar kind of circular logic to that. But it's an airtight kind of an idea. Its only flaw is it's not even slightly true. So Job replies, and he says, I have heard many things like these. You are miserable comforters. Will your long-winded speeches never end? What ails you that you keep on arguing with me? And then one of the prettiest passages in Job, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand upon the earth and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another, how my heart yearns within me. So Job is showing some remarkable faith even at this point. And I want you to think about we're well into his suffering, well into his friends. And so he says, listen, I understand. I believe that too. But my problem is it's causing me a major dilemma because I know something you don't know, and that is I'm innocent. I didn't do anything to deserve this. He can't explain it, but look what he does. I know that my Redeemer lives. In other words, I do not know the last chapter, but I trust that my God does know the last chapter. Question? Yes, what about the idea of natural consequences of our choices, good or bad? Mm -hmm. there, uh, if you think about it, the idea of natural consequences is that's certainly true. It just isn't karmic in the sense that you can't enforce the idea that if you do the right thing, good stuff will always happen. And Job, in just a second, is going to argue with the second half of that too. You can't guarantee that bad people are going to have bad things happen to them. So there are sometimes natural consequences of things. You jump off a tall building, you, unless you're Superman, you're going to go splat. I mean, that is a, a consequence. But if you cheat, lie, steal, and stab somebody in the back, there's no guarantee that you will necessarily suffer for that. So there are indeed natural consequences but this idea of karma, in a world with karma, you would need natural consequences to all act like natural laws. In other words, there had to be some judge who knew, first of all, what is good, what is fair, a universal standard, and then secondly, they'd have the power. Keep in mind both those ideas. You have to know what's good, and you have to have the power to enforce it, because God's going to bring that up next week. So, yes, there are natural consequences. They're just not strong enough to make karma work. How would this story be different if the Holy Spirit were involved? How would this story be different if the Holy Spirit were involved uh, in this? Well, a couple of, couple of things. This is conjecture, obviously, but a couple of thoughts. One is that I think, unlike Job, for those who are believers, think about Ephesians 1.13. When you believed, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. It's a down payment for what you will get in the end. So think about the Holy Spirit. This is a great, that's a great question because it's a good way to think about the Holy Spirit. Think about the Holy Spirit is literally as a down payment. 
It's God inside us. It is the Holy Spirit sealing everyone who trusts, places their trust in Jesus Christ. So whereas Job is holding on to nothing more than just hope that my Redeemer lives and this will turn out okay because it sure doesn't look like it, I think Christians, when we suffer, if we will listen to the Spirit, Romans 8 has that beautiful passage about the Spirit intercedes for us when our groanings and our utterings, we can't even express our feelings and our thoughts and our prayers to God, and the Spirit himself intercedes for us. I think for believers, we have that assurance that we know what the last chapter is. So I think it would be, have been different in that sense. I think this is a powerful story, not just for believers. I think that the story of Job is a powerful story for non-believers. I think it's addressing a basic human issue, Christian or not. So, good question. Okay? Uh, let's go on and see what, what happens uh, in terms of Job's answer. He goes on and he says, My spirit is broken. My days are cut short. He thinks he's going to die. He's going to suffer, then he's going to die. The grave awaits me. Surely mockers surround me. My eyes must dwell on their hostility. You've got to know that Job is just being assassinated on social media. Like, oh, Job, the high and mighty, look where he is now. There's a, no matter how much you're suffering, the, the beauty of technology is there's always somebody on social media that would love to stomp on you while you're down. Isn't, isn't the internet wonderful? But basically, people are talking about Job, and he's, you know, they're all saying, oh, wonder what he did. He must have some big secret sin, because after all, the righteous prosper, the wicked suffer. And so he, he says, people mock me. He says, but now they mock me, men younger than I, whose fathers I would have disdained to put with my sheepdogs. In other words, oh my goodness, how far have I fallen? And people who are far less, here's his point, people who are far less righteous than I are doing fine. I'm the guy sitting out here on the trash heap, suffering and scraping the sores on my body and in agony. And people who are not a tenth as righteous as I am, they seem to be doing okay. So Job is going to refute both sides of this. He looks at that paradigm and he's just going to blow it up. He realizes, and this is part of the reason for the story of Job, is to blow up this idea of karma. Is that good people prosper, bad people suffer. Job says, well, first of all, I know, even though my friends don't, that the first half of that's not true. I am a good person. I am righteous. You and I know it because even God said he was an upright man. And so that's not true. Then he looks at the second part. And he says, by the way, guys, have you not looked around and realized that the wicked don't always suffer? So he's kind of blowing up that whole idea, his whole worldview. And if you think about it, that idea of karma, that idea of the way things should be, is that good people should prosper, even though we don't know what a good person, we have an idea, but we can't get agreement on that throughout the world. And bad people can't get agreement on that either, but they should suffer. That seems right to us. And yet, in the story of Job, that whole thing is being shown to just be not true at all. It's just getting completely blown up in the story. And that's why I say this is important story for Christians or non-Christians. Because if you are not a Christian, you actually have a massive problem with evil in the world. Most people come to Christians and say, hey, I can't believe in your God. 
because he lets bad things happen to good people. And you should say, well, you, should, you need to go further than that. He does even worse than that. He lets some of the bad people actually do okay. It's even worse than you think that it is. So, well, I can't believe in your God for that reason. Well, stop and think about this. Now, that's a fair question, and it's worth discussing. I'm not trying to trivialize the question, but think about what you're left with then. You actually, without God, have a far bigger problem with evil than you had with God. You should think that through a little bit. And when you talk to people, explore that. Well, help me then. What do you think about evil? How are you going to make sense of suffering in the world? How are you going to make sense of this? There's no way to make sense of that at all. So anyway, Job points out to them, he says, you know what? Your world is actually completely unfair. That paradigm, if that's the way things are supposed to work, our world is completely unfair. Here's your second thought experiment. I don't know about you, but I've done my share of criticizing God, particularly when you're suffering. Job, definitely, if you're reading along with us, you'll realize Job is doing his share of criticizing God. Like, this is not the way it's supposed to work. Don't know where you are. Did you take a vacation? Do you see what is happening here? And so I felt that way, and I've kind of complained against God. And I thought to myself, you know, as long as I'm here suffering, as long as I'm complaining and God hasn't gotten back to me yet, I'll just go ahead and figure out a better way to run the world. So when he does get back to me, I can just give him a suggestion. But seriously, here's a thought experiment. How would you run the world if you were God? All powerful, all present, how would you run the world? Well, that's a, not a trivial question, actually, because now you have the problem of evil. You have the problem of why do wicked people uh, seem to do okay sometimes. You have the problem of why do people suffer who don't seem to deserve that suffering like Job. How would you solve that problem? And you're going to see that when God confronts this, and I'm pre-viewing this now because we won't have time to get too much into this next week, but basically God could easily just turn this around and ask you the question, how would you run the world? And could you be fair? And could you pick out the good people? And the more you think about it, I'm not telling you that solves the problem. I'm just telling you it gives us perspective like, well, I'm willing to listen to your proposal, God, because I don't have a better idea. In fact, all my ideas seem to be pretty selfish. Like, really? If you just take care of me and the people I like, we'll call it even. Fair? Well, welcome back to the whole paradigm of I do good stuff, you take care of me. And the world doesn't work that way. So Job's really blowing this whole thing up. And he said, you know what? The world isn't fair. If that's the way the world works, then it's broken. It doesn't, that's not fair at all. But Job goes even further. Look at this. He says, why do the wicked live on, growing old and increasing in power? They see their children established around them, the man who's lost all of his children, their offspring before their eyes. Their homes are safe and free from fear. The rod of God is not upon them. Their bulls never fail to breed. Their cows calve and do not miscarry. See, you see what I'm talking about here. You're going, oh yeah, that's prosperity. They send forth their children as a flock. Their little ones dance about. They sing to the music of tambourine and harp. They make merry to the sound of the flute. They spend their years in prosperity and go down to the grave in peace. And so Job is saying, you know what? It's even more goofed up than you think. Both sides of this are wrong. Then he goes on and he says this. He turns, and we do this a lot. When we get stymied, the way we thought the world worked, it didn't work. And so then we need to find somebody to blame, 
right? And that's what Job does. He turns to God and he said, God throws me into the mud and I am reduced to dust and ashes. I cry out to you, God, but you do not answer. I stand up, but you merely look at me. You turn on me ruthlessly, and with the might of your hand, you attack me. So up to this point, Job's just said, I've got a dilemma. I think God is good, and yet bad things are happening to me, and I'm innocent. And I look around, and I notice that good things are happening to some of these wicked people. And so he's caught in this dilemma, and he doesn't see a way out. And finally, as we also often do, he realizes, well, there must be something wrong with God. And so he turns to God and he says, you know, you're not doing your job. He said, for some reason you have turned on me ruthlessly with the might of your hand, you've attacked me. In other words, he's saying, bad things are happening to me and I don't deserve them. God goes, yeah, that's, that's true. We know that because we read the first part of the story. And he says, and you're responsible. Now that is an interesting claim. So the question of, is God responsible for evil because God allows evil. Now, we know that God didn't say, by the way, Job, don't like the way you look today, you're gonna have cancer. That's not the way God works, it's not the way this story has worked. But God does, let's not duck this, God permits it, doesn't he? He permits it today, he permits bad things to happen. And Job says, because you permitted it, you're responsible for this. So think about this, another little thought experiment. Think about a bullet maker. So, company makes bullets, some of those bullets go to the military and they go to defend our country. And you would say, well done, bullet maker. A couple of those bullets get in the hands of lawbreakers and they go to murder someone who does not deserve to be murdered, obviously. What do you say to the bullet maker now? Bad job, bullet maker. In other words, good and bad get judged by the result at the end of the process. That's what Job's really saying. In other words, when things were going good, did he have heartburn with God? No. He said, hey, I'm happy with you. You're doing a really good job. Things are going bad. He says, hey, the world doesn't work the way I thought it did, and so now I have a problem with you. And in fact, all the bad stuff that's happened to me, you could have prevented it, so you're responsible for it. That's an insidious idea, by the way, in the, and you'll see it in the secular world too, is how do you know if an action is moral? How do you know if an action is good? Christians would say, and the whole Judeo-Christian ethic would say, there is an absolute standard of right and wrong. Some actions are in and of themselves right or wrong. But this idea, and a more secular idea would say, well, it depends on how it turns out. Depends on how the bullet gets used. Then I'll tell you whether or not that was a righteous act. Do you see how crippling that is? That first of all, it's completely useless to you in making a moral decision because you don't know how all your decisions will turn out, do you? You need a guide. You would have to be able to predict the future to know, well, is this gonna be a good deed or is it gonna be a bad deed, right? Well, I don't know, I'll have to wait and see how it turns out. Well, it's not very workable and the point is it's very relative then, isn't it? You don't actually even control whether or not this was a good idea or a bad idea, but you'll see it everywhere in our culture Think about this, when you see, particularly politicians, but also just people in the limelight, when you see them getting crucified on social media and you see the media going after people, watch because it's usually because they have done something in the past and now 
it's a bad outcome. Sometimes it's just now a bad outcome. It wasn't a bad outcome before, but now it's a bad outcome. Therefore, and here's the insidious part, therefore, your action was immoral at the beginning. That's what Job is saying to God. And I want you to think about that a little bit because that's not a very fair accusation. In other words, if you could stop bad things from happening, you should stop bad things from happening. Even if you're like the bullet maker, you don't necessarily know if it's gonna be a bad thing or a good thing. You're a physician. You don't know exactly what this patient has, but you're gonna treat this patient. You're gonna to try to make this patient better. Instead, you give this patient something that makes them suffer more and they die. Did you do a moral thing or an immoral thing? Well, if you're gonna to have to wait to see how it works out, then you're never going to know until it works out. You see what I'm trying to say? And Job is accusing God of this. He's basically, and we do it too. We say to God, you could have prevented this, you should have prevented this. In other words, your actions have to be immoral because it didn't turn out very well. So that's what he's going to accuse God of. The problem with that, and if you think about it, other than the fact that it's not a morality that anybody can be held to, I mean, that's a standard you're putting on God. You and I, I could never figure out whether what I was going to do, how do I know if it's going to turn out well in the end or not? I can only know the intentions and the actions of the moment. But I'm going to put that standard on God. Here's the problem. God could flip that around just as easily. If you and I believe that if God has the power to stop something bad from happening, he should, then what are you going to say when God flips it around and says, you know what? You have the power to stop a lot of bad things that are happening in the world. Why aren't you doing it? I notice there are a lot of kids starving. In fact, I notice there are kids who are hungry in your town. Now, I'll just ask you the same question. Are you not responsible for that because you could have prevented it, you could have helped that, and yet you do not? You see what I'm saying? That is an impossible standard for us or for God to live up to. That idea is if you could have done something, you should have done something. You and I are just as guilty as, I mean, it's a hypocritical thing. We're just as guilty of what we're accusing God of in that case, is we also can look around the world and go, we have guilt because we have failed to intervene when we could intervene. And so the question is natural question to God. It's like, you are responsible for this. Why are you letting this happen to me? And we, we think that. I want to go all the way back to Sigmund Freud. Sigmund Freud doesn't believe in God, but he does believe that he knows why you believe in God. He's kind of like Satan in the sense that he's making an accusation. He said, you believe in God because you want a big brother who you can blame if things don't go well, and you can hope that he's going to take care of you and not let anything bad happen to you. Well, that's what this accusation is. Job is basically saying, hey, bad things are happening to me. I really didn't deserve it. You are responsible. Why? because you were supposed to take care of me. Notice how everything comes back to good people should have good things happen to them, bad people should have bad things happen to them. And if the book of Job does nothing else, it should blow that idea up, is that that's not the way the world works. And you can say, well, life's not fair. And I understand that, what we mean by that is that paradigm doesn't work. The reality of it is we don't know what's fair and we won't even agree with people in other countries about what is fair. So Job's stuck here. He's in a bit of a dilemma, and the only way out is to accuse God of doing something wrong. 
that God has to bear the blame. I don't know what it is about us, but we do like to have, we do like to point the finger, don't we? All the way back to the Garden of Eden. You remember that story? I'm surprised Job didn't blame his wife because that's what Adam did. I mean, if you think about it, bad things happen in the Garden of Eden. God comes to Adam and he says, Adam, what are you doing? He goes, she did it. She gave me the fruit you said we shouldn't eat. Said it was on sale, two for one. I ate one. You know, I mean, that's basically we like to point, and that's what Job is doing, and that's what we're tempted to do too. As our perspective shrinks in suffering, we need to poke a hole. We need to find a way out. Sometimes we'll blame each other. Sometimes we'll blame our doctor. We'll blame our lawyer. We'll blame our insurance agent. We'll blame, you know, whatever. And yet... None of those things are fair, and we really don't have the perspective to see it. None of those things are actually just. Well, that's where Job is, and that's where Job is stuck. Turns out his friends, not very helpful. There's one other friend that I'm not going to cover, but if you read this, you'll see he's got a really long-winded speech. His name is Elihu. He's a younger guy, and he listens to this. You don't know that he's there, but he's obviously listened to it. And he pops up, and he said, okay, let me give you the millennial point of view on this. He says, first of all, you guys are idiots. You know, you, you really fail to convince Job. And he gets mad at Job. Have you ever seen that happen? Somebody doesn't agree with you and they just won't see it your way. It's like, Job, good people prosper, bad people suffer. Job goes, no. In fact, both of those statements are wrong. And Elihu just gets mad at him. Like, how could you dare challenge my worldview? Interesting lesson there. When you as a Christian begin to talk about some of these real issues with people that don't believe, and you begin to confront them with some of the big issues that their worldview has, don't expect them to say, thank you for clearing up my thinking. You know, it is all clear to me now. Our tendency, this is just human, is to get angry, like, how dare you threaten my worldview? Well, that's a lie to you. He says, how dare you threaten my worldview? I need a world where good people get rewarded and bad people get punished. And Job says, man, I did too, but I just got to tell you, this isn't that world. I'm finding out firsthand that's not the way it works. And a lot of times we'll get hostility in that situation. And that's exactly what Job gets from his friend. So at the end, when all is said and done, and there's been a lot said and not much done in Job's case, but his friends have been pretty long-winded, And Job finally says, even today, my complaint is bitter. His hand, God's hand is heavy in spite of my groaning. If only I knew where to find him. Now, that's a bold thing like, I'm just going to go to his office and I'm going to confront him myself. If only I knew where to find him. If only I could go to his dwelling. I would state my case before him and I would fill my mouth with arguments. I mean, a little Clarence Darrow here. I mean, like, wow, I've got a brief. He's going to bowl him over. Let God weigh me in honest scales, and he will know that I am blameless. So what's Job doing here? He says, okay, I think God's responsible, and so you guys, your worldview isn't acceptable. I don't know how this works. I just know that God must have done something wrong because I didn't. And, you know, you get into that little false dichotomy It's when bad things happen, either I did something wrong or God did something wrong, it ends badly. And it ends badly two ways. And I want to warn you about this. If you get, because this is my situation, typically is something bad happens and I pretty much caused it. So if it's got to be a dichotomy, then I'm going to feel guilty and I'm going to be down on myself, aren't I? Like, well, 
If you'll act perfectly, Terry, it will go well. Karma, right? If you will do everything right, but you didn't do it right here, so you worthless thing you. I mean, we can really get down on ourselves. Or we go, hey, that came out of the blue. I didn't do anything to deserve getting cancer. I didn't do anything to deserve this happening. So there must be a problem with God. This little us and them dichotomy we get into is, is no win in that situation. That's a failure to realize that God actually loves you. God is actually with you. Or actually, you get to be with God. And that comes down to, when we get into those situations, we just don't trust God to write the rest of our story. And that's where Job is. He said, God, we have to talk. Because I'm innocent, and I'm pretty sure I can convince you I'm innocent if you'll uh, listen to me for a few minutes. And after that, I'm pretty sure, God, you'll be apologizing to me because you have done something wrong. And I don't know about you, but I suspect we've all been there before, haven't we? It's like, why, God? You read the Psalms, you'll see David was there a lot. He would say, God, why do you still let this go on? And yet, by the end of every Psalm, he's praising God and says, but I still hold on to you. I trust you to write this story, not me. In fact, there's a really interesting story, and I'll finish up after this, but this is just a pretty little story. So David does something wrong, uh, and he basically does something that displeases God. And so God says, there's going to have to be a punishment for this. In other words, you're going to be disciplined for this, but you get your choice. I'm either going to, I will punish you, or I will let your enemies have success and have their way with you. So which one do you want? And David's answer is, is really very instructive. He said, you know what? He said, I know what I'm going to get from my enemies, and I don't know what I'm going to get from you, but I know this, you're on my side, I trust you, so I'll take whatever you give me. It's a powerful statement of faith, isn't it? Well, Job is wrestling with his faith. And so in our next lesson, when we see Job, he's going to get his wish. And this is my warning to you. Be careful when you say things like, I'm going to go to God's office and I'm going to confront him because you might get what you asked for. And that is a terrifying thing. So next lesson, we're going to see God show up, and God is going to reframe this whole thing. At this point, you've got Job's friends, you've got Elihu, they've got their paradigm. You've got Job, who has fallen into a paradigm of, one of us did something wrong, and it isn't me, must be you. And God is going to come into this situation in chapter 38, and he's going to come at it and he's gonna reframe the whole thing. And I think when we get to that point, I want you to have really thought about this. Think about this idea of karma. Think about this paradigm and ask yourself this, what's my paradigm? My Monday through Friday, workaday world, what kind of paradigm am I operating off of in my head? Is it, if I do good stuff, God will take care of me? And all the people that treat me badly at work and my, you know, my boss, who's a real jerk, sooner or later, bad things will happen to him. Am I operating on that paradigm? Maybe not. But what paradigm am I operating on? How am I going to approach these things? Think about that this week, because in our next lesson, God's going to give you God's paradigm on how these things work. I'll see you guys next week.